Hi, this is Benjamin Joff, partner at SOSV. We invest globally in early-stage startups with a focus on deep tech, ranging from cellular agriculture to neurotech and service robots. In this podcast, startup founders and investors tell us how innovation can go from lab to market. We want to invest in those grungy, hard technologies that don't get attention, because those are actually the underinvested technologies that need to see the light of day. John Ho is a partner at Enzo Partners, a US-based 190 million venture capital and private equity fund focused on breakthrough industrial technologies. John is a computer science and electrical engineering PhD from MIT, a longtime Bostonian who worked in industry and management consulting. In this episode, John talks about the reasons for their focus on industrial tech, their approach to technical due diligence and market evaluation, and their belief in geographic diversity. He also dives into how Anzu supports its portfolio toward value creation milestones and capital efficiency to provide both runway and optionality. Finally, he shares his thoughts on how the coronavirus epidemic is affecting deep tech. Hi, John. Pleasure to have you. Can you tell us more about your background, Anzu, and the region? Thanks, Ben. Glad to be here. Yes, so I'm a lifelong Boston person. I grew up in a suburb, went to MIT, got my undergrad and doctorate there in electrical engineering, computer science. Ended up at BCG in the Boston office, worked in a local startup in Lexington in nanotechnology, again, before ultimately joining ANSI Partners on the investment side. And that's what led to ultimately the formation of the Boston office. Boston is beyond just being my home and, and place that I'm very familiar with. I do think it, it's been a long time hub of investment activity, certainly, and also deep tech activity as well. And I saw it when I was at MIT. I'm seeing it now as an alumni and all the local uh, universities that are in the region, Harvard, Northeastern, BU. So I think there's a rich history and also broth of, of just entrepreneurs, scientists, investors that will keep Boston, I think, in good stead uh, into the future, certainly as a hard tech ecosystem. Boston is sort of the original Silicon Valley. Yeah, yeah. So certainly going back to, gosh, even the 1970s or 60s, right, with the uh, original mainframe computers. And that was certainly before my time. But I think the legacy of those companies certainly lives on, right? And you have, I think, a lot of brain power that resides within the Route 128 corridor, essentially. Many of those entrepreneurs who were successful there went into VC. Many of them started their own companies. Many of them had children who then, you know, again, stayed local and, and started their own companies as well. So I think there's, again, this long history of tech savviness, innovation, innovation, and I think a willingness to explore, you know, maybe more risky deep tech ideas. And the partners just closed a new fund of $190 million? Correct. As a firm, we actually started back in uh, 2015, and then the second fund just closed earlier this year. We were targeting $150 million primarily to invest in industrial breakthrough technologies, and we ended up going past our hard cap of 180 and ended up oversubscribing to 190. Congratulations. Which is a good problem to have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell about the origin story and the background of the founding team? Because you in deep tech, very often, it sounds like deep tech investors should all be technical. Yeah, the origin stories are quite interesting. You know, so the firm itself started with two partners who were based in DC and they were investing essentially through special purpose vehicles, syndicating with other investors that they knew quite well and out of their own pockets, basically in any company that they thought was interesting. So it wasn't focused at all on deep tech or industrial technologies. Then because of the interest of one of the partners, there was a number of investments that were made that had this flavor of industrial technology. One was a company called Nuburu, which was essentially a seed investment in a company that was making high-powered blue lasers for yellow metal welding. So essentially gold and copper. 
right? And this is a problem because infrared lasers aren't well absorbed by those kinds of metals. So you have a lot of spatter and you have bad welds. So that was one company that's based in Denver, Colorado. The other investment was actually an acquisition of a divestiture from Philips called Accent Technologies. And they were making a tunable infrared laser for scanning your eyes, essentially, with a technology based on medical OCT. Those two investments on paper actually did quite well in the beginning. What that led us to believe and understand is that there's potentially a lot more opportunities like that in this industrial space. We were essentially encouraged by our other syndication partners to start a fund because the overhead of having special purpose vehicles for each investment was becoming quite cumbersome and they wanted to put more money to work and they really believed in this industrial technology theme. So we went ahead and built our investment thesis around this idea that actually there is a growing demand for industrial tech because what's happened in the world essentially is the large corporates, you know, the 500 companies that may maybe matter in the world have hollowed out their internal R&D programs. The market has demonstrated that there's really essentially no shareholder value to invest dollars back into internal R&D. And so where they're getting innovation from is largely M&A. And that's not coming back. Our goal then was to really try to understand what the problems were that these companies were facing and turn them into opportunities to look for new technologies that could ultimately fit in to those companies and should have probably been part of their internal R&D programs had they actually invested in them. So that was really what led us to believe that there would be this robust pipeline of companies that would ultimately find homes in strategics and corporates. We started off then raising a fund based on this thesis of industrial breakthrough technologies and realized that there was actually um, a lot of interest from LPs because it wasn't correlated to their existing portfolios, right? There weren't a lot of funds going out there trying to raise just based on hard tech or deep tech. The other piece of it too was that we were sizing our fund we were talking about $100 million, and we were sizing it on purpose to that size because we didn't want to have a lot of small seed stage investments where we would have minority control and not really be able to affect change in those organizations. What we really wanted to do was make meaningful investments somewhere between you know 2 to $10 million each and be able to have a board seat, have a meaningful equity stake, and then really roll up our sleeves and get knee-deep alongside the entrepreneurs and founders to help build the company up. That ended up really becoming the basis for how we started to run our funds. And it, it does feel much more like a private equity shop than a VC firm in that way, right? Because we do have the ability to think creatively, not only about how we finance a company, whether that's a 20% equity stake or even a full majority ownership of a company. We've done spin outs, we've done acquisitions and mergers. But in addition, you know, we're really going in with our team to partner and complement the founding teams to give them whatever help they need, whether that's on the accounting finance side or on the technical services side, where that might include rapid prototyping or scaling up manufacturing. That's a very original angle for a fund. You're trying to find technologies that serve very large accounts. It's a de-risk a lot what would happen with consumer mobile apps, for example. That would be uh, much more unpredictable. Yes. So we, we purposely stayed away from social media and consumer facing technologies. Really, our sweet spot is in those B2B type of technologies, ones that serve, again, needs for this large industrial corporate base that we all knew quite well because myself and the other partners and principals all have backgrounds from management consulting. And so that allowed us to have a view on that world and understanding where they're, where they're facing the biggest challenges and where innovation can help them solve some of those challenges. When you talk about industrial technologies, the first understanding of industry is generally around manufacturing or production technologies. But in your portfolio, you also have companies that seem to be touching upon biotech and other types of sectors. How did you expand to those different sectors and how did you build up the know-how to be able to do those deals? 
we think of industrial technologies, we really think about not only across the types of categories of technologies, but also the industries that they're going to be transforming. We see macro trends in semiconductor manufacturing. We see macro trends in aviation and, and automotive, right? A lot of those are led by innovations that might span across you know, advanced materials or manufacturing technologies or measurement and modeling sensors. So hardware that would really enable leaps and bounds within these industries, whether that's from an operating cost perspective or from entering into new markets and enabling new capabilities. You know, we really are looking at the intersection between those two. And we actually find that it's beneficial to focus so narrowly in this space because it allows us to really not have a lot of competition when we think about who's around the table and wanting to invest in these companies. There aren't a lot of VC firms that actually invest, I guess, at the stage that we invest and with our particular focus. And certainly, I would say very few, if at all, any that also bring the types of hands-on approach that we do. And so how do we get to that stage? I think it really grew organically. I'd be lying to say we had this all framed out from the very beginning. But what we found is that certainly in our initial pre-fund investments of Nibiru and Axon, we found that partnering with the management team, helping them build their companies, not just on the business side, but also on the technical side, could have immense benefits. At Axon, that was where I was first sent to do my job. I was squatting in the uh, the cubicles of One Fortune Drive, helping to think about new adjacent markets to take their core technology into. And through that work, we ended up spinning off a company or the firm that is now investing in. You know, it's things like that. It's creating value in ways that I guess are maybe non-traditional from a venture capital standpoint, but certainly are in the playbook of private equity. That flexibility helps us tremendously, certainly at this early stage, where you never really know how long it's going to take to, to realize an exit or how risky the technology is, per se, and whether you've established that product market fit truly. We like to invest in things that have optionality, that are platform technologies that enable, again, these disruptions in potentially multiple industries. But we do then require a strong focus in one, at least one, and that's where we underwrite our deals. When you invest, you typically invest in companies that don't have yet a product on market. Correct. So we will invest in companies that are past what we call the science plateau. That means that they've gone beyond making the invention and filing the IP. They've actually instantiated the invention with a prototype and now have designs for developing a, an actual product, an engineering product. And then certainly companies that have that product and are looking to scale up and get into commercialization. Those two later plateaus are areas where we feel our expertise and our capital can actually be used and leveraged to accelerate the timelines. If something's in a lab where you're waiting on invention, there's no way that we can predict what those timelines are going to be. And that kind of risk is not something that we would willingly expose our LPs to. We're certainly very cognizant that there's a line between science risk and engineering risk. When we do our technical due diligence, a lot of it is around figuring out, A, can they do what they say they're going to do? And that really is between technical and engineering risk. And then the other part of it is, if they do what they say they can do, will anybody care? Right. And that's where we're connecting our connectivity on the industrial side, looking back into the technology and saying, hey, is, is there a fit here? Is there, are there synergies that can be uniquely enabled by the technology? How do you perform your technical due diligence? You have some in-house knowledge, but you also touch upon many different sectors and industries. So in recent deals, maybe you made, what did you do to evaluate the technology and this technical risk? Yeah, so I should say we almost exclusively lead deals. So we run a really robust formal diligence. And our diligence process really starts out as screening. A company will pitch, and any member of the Anzu team actually can accept the pitch and act as the eyes and ears of the company. Essentially, if there's interest from someone on the team to take it forward, that gets funneled into a pre-diligence funnel where we try to figure out some of the answers to these questions about how technically feasible is this concept 
is it something that someone on our team could build in a weekend or is it actually a meaningful disruption in technology? And then we also get an initial feeling for whether there are corporate sponsors or folks that might care about the technology. And oftentimes you can supplement that research by understanding what their non-diluted funding track record is, right? Whether they have any SBIRs or grant funding from relevant government agencies or they have NRE from partners who are helping to develop the technology, right? So there's at least a sign that there are folks beyond the company that care about the technology and are willing to invest in it. So really the next milestone after the pre-diligence is to get to a term sheet. That pre-diligence period may span weeks, it may span months, but ultimately that term sheet is one where we will then, based again on our internal benchmarking, apply deal economics that makes sense for us to the deal based on what we think the technical and commercial risks are. We try to honor those term sheets as best we can through the formal diligence. So we won't willingly offer a term sheet if we don't think that we can actually close the deal. And by virtue of that, our hit rate post-term sheet is roughly 80% or more. The technical diligence, we do have a lot of in-house capabilities. Certainly, you know, we have a stable of eight PhDs in different advanced sciences and engineering disciplines, like myself, who can go deep into technology. We also have folks who have deep expertise in particular industries from previous careers. You know, mine happens to be in displays and consumer electronics. And so we can very quickly get to the heart of the matter and understand technologies and, and then speak technically with the founders. And I think that actually helps quite a bit because when you can get the initial trust of those technical founders and say, hey, look, I don't have to explain the entire science to you or even the industry, you get it. There's much more of an open dialogue than about, you know, what are the real true risks involved? What are the true commercial risks that maybe they're not seeing? It becomes much more of a collaborative process at that stage. So I would say the technical diligence isn't just us sort of doing desk research interviewing experts and such, although that's a part of it. I'd say a lot of it comes from the collaborative discussions with the technical founders to really unlock and understand from their perspective, their view on the technology, right? Because you know they may tell a nice story in a pitch deck to someone who may not be that well-informed because they can only give so much information to that individual before some of it just doesn't get accepted, right? There's just an impedance mismatch between the two and the communication. So by reducing that impedance and having folks who can talk the talk and understand the science, we're able to get much deeper, much quicker into the real nitty-gritty of the technology and again, whether it will work. We also have folks who can run experiments and, and actually test and verify whether the data is uh, actually real. And we've done that on several occasions. You're in an ecosystem where there's a lot of creativity, a lot of invention. Uh, MIT is often an inspiration for science fiction and <laughs> crazy types of uh, technologies. How do you refrain yourself from getting too excited about maybe some technology or something that looks futuristic? It comes from our underwriting and our process. So I'd say we underwrite our deals to have meaningful returns, but we're not underwriting every deal to be a unicorn. We don't expect every deal to be a thousand X. Every deal we treat as a standalone deal that we think can be successful and put us in the top decile of performers in the VC world. So, you know, more modest sort of like three X over three years or five X over five year kind of returns. And that, that's the base underwriting. Now, there's always upside to that, but it has to at least be very comfortable and we have to be confident that it will return at least that much. That means that we need to see a level of commercial traction that may be beyond the sci-fi realm. I think if you're thinking about the really futuristic stuff, there really may not even be market there yet. And I think where we've had the most success is disruptions that come in very old markets, markets that haven't had new technologies or new innovation in some time. And along comes this new technology. And now it's like, okay, as long as we can get the technology to where it needs to be, there are willing partners on the other side who will try it and test it and validate it and ultimately adopt it and hopefully acquire it. We're not taking on the dual challenge of making sure the technology can work and also building a new market and explaining that and educating folks. And that may mean that we miss out on, you know, the Facebooks of the world and, and whatnot. But to us, that's okay, right? We're not aiming to invest in solely unicorns. We're looking to make really good investments in businesses that can ultimately get to profitability and sustain themselves and, and exit on the other side to uh, corporates that we're familiar with. 
The other piece of it is our process. And so, you know, while any one individual can get very excited about a deal, we require a consensus at the investment committee level. So all of the partners have to fully agree unanimously in a deal. And what that means is there's always one partner that sponsors a deal, knows the technology really deeply, understands the industry, but the other partners are looking at it more from an objective lens of, okay, what are the economics of the deal? Does this make sense from my own experiences? You know, I've heard your story, but I'm starting off skeptical. And we've had a number of deals that ultimately became portfolio companies that, you know, look like they were going to be dead in the water at various points in the diligence process. We don't give anyone a free pass. Let's put it that way. We are very hard on ourselves. Respectfully, we will disagree with each other and pose the tough questions to make sure that, you know, we are, in fact, again, protecting the interests of our LPs. If we can do that and continue to be good stewards, that's where, you know, we'll do our best work. One other interesting aspect of your firm is that you don't limit yourselves to some of the hotspots of technology like Boston or Silicon Valley, but you actually invest quite broadly. And I read in an interview that you believe in geographical diversity. How do you generate that deal flow? 80 to 90% of our deal flow is actually from word of mouth and, and within the network. That is, I think, partially a byproduct of how we've structured our, our fund, which is to say we have a number of LPs, over 100 actually, in various geographies at various levels of management in a number of these corporate industrial companies that matter. And so if you thought about the matrix of geography and industry, if you said, like, I need an executive in automotive in China, we generally have an LP there that fits that mold and can connect us with the broader industry and also the specific companies that matter. So you know, our LP base is actually quite active and helpful in connecting us with the key opinion leaders or even you know folks that can help us to really suss out whether technology is going to matter or not. And so that construction helps us get to have these broad networks that are diverse, both in, in terms of technology as well as geographies. Much of our deal flow is from that same network. And as we grow our portfolio, I would say another great source of deals is actually our existing portfolio CEOs. Many CEOs know other entrepreneurs and come from those ecosystems. So that's another good source. And then you know, certainly within the ecosystems that we're engaged in, both in Boston and San Diego and Atlanta, there are accelerators, incubators that we are friendly with and definitely certainly visit and consult with as we look at new deals. But I would say a majority of our deals that are successful are generally from a recommendation. Someone from the network has actually offered recommendations that, hey, you should take a look at this. We think this is interesting. The networks are definitely key uh, to act as a first filter also on all those companies. That's right. And while we attend pitch competitions and while we go to those networking events, I would say the hit rate of deals from those events is quite low for us. For a number of reasons. I think one is that there's just so much competition or tension in those events. And I think also, too, if it doesn't have that kind of connectivity within the firm, it's very difficult to get someone convicted around the technology and that opportunity. With Anzu, you need a champion that's going to take it through, again, this arduous diligence process, right, where the end isn't always clear. You know, there are many of my deals where I thought, geez, I just spent six or seven weeks doing this. I don't think it's actually going to go through anymore. How am I going to salvage this? How do I convince my partners that this is a real opportunity? It forces you to go think about, again, ways of convincing folks, whether that's through finding more commercial traction, finding that key opinion leader that's really going to sway everybody's opinion, doing the base experimental work to actually show that, hey, this will actually work. And if we could just scale this or if we could just you know add these bits here and there, which are lower risk, this, this really has a shot at, at working. It almost sounds like you're part of the startup team to pitch for this. 
in a way, yeah, there's a lot of affiliation there that happens through the diligence process. And I think that's so important in our model because as soon as we make the investment, we then introduce them to our business services platform, which, as I mentioned before, has the traditional HR accounting elements to it, but also has this manufacturing operations piece, which can help them with prototyping, can help them with new product introductions, scale up. And so that's where we can really get into the guts of the company and help them move things along because every company at the stages that we invest has gaps, right? There's no perfect team. And in fact, I think that platform allows us to potentially invest in companies and look at companies that would otherwise be a hard pass from any investor because they don't have the ability to complement the teams that may not be your sort of traditional high-performing investable teams, right? There may be younger entrepreneurs, they may be not a fully formed executive team that you could have confidence will take it forward. And that's where, again, we can really step in and complement them and really be good pinch hitters and stewards of the business while the company builds its internal capabilities. So I think it does allow us to take on an element of risk in the team side of things. But what we won't really accept is risk on the technical side, certainly not as much risk on the commercial side either. Yeah, there's similarities with our approach. We also want to see prototype that demonstrates some of the core technology. But I think we also take some level of team risk because we invest at pre-seed. So obviously, uh, there are some gaps as well. But in our case, we take the risk of being confident that we can help them bridge the gap from prototype to product by our programs and our, our support. Exactly. I think Anzu is filled with folks, former operators in, in various roles and functions. It's easy for us to parachute in and really help companies move along, provide our expertise, and then hop back out once they've hired that internally. We're not scared of teams that are not fully formed. Maybe some of them are broken. I mean, those kinds of complex deals that have a lot of hair on them, those are actually deals that I think we're uniquely suited to invest in and actually to shave off the hair, clean it up, figure out how to make a workable deal out of this. And sometimes you do find these gems, these these diamonds in the rough that no one else would have really invested in or, or looked at. Do you feel that overall deep tech is getting easier to do, faster to get to market, faster to get to business than it used to be? Yeah, I don't know that it's any faster. I would say it's a lot easier to start a company in deep tech because there's a lot more incubators, accelerators that are focused on that. And there's a larger support network around it. But I still think that commercialization timelines are, are relatively long from initial concept to actual product revenue. Largely, it's still you know a five to seven year endeavor from when you first start a company to actually hopefully getting product revenue in, in a lot of cases. And so you do have to time it right. There are some companies that we've invested in after they've been founded for 10 years, right? and they've sort of meandered all the way to this point where now they're investable and we see the signs of market traction. We see the technical risk being basically knocked off. Some companies that we've incubated from the beginning, knowing that it's going to be three to five years before there's product revenue. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's necessarily any easier. There's more of them because of the dry powder and the capital that's available. Because again, of these incubators and accelerators that exist in, in various locations that act as magnets for this kind of activity. But you have this sort of evergreen pool of, of these companies coming from universities. MIT, Harvard, Georgia Tech. I mean, any of these universities with material science or, or engineering majors have programs that are spinning off IP left and right. And it's really a question of how do you pair that IP with a team and with a market opportunity that fits? You know, sometimes we'll go to the IP level and, and string it all together. Other times we'll wait till that IP is picked up by a team, actually shows signs of life and has a market opportunity that's right in front of them. And then that's what we'll invest. Again, it just depends on the size of the opportunity at the end of the day and what kinds of capabilities are needed to get that company from point A to point B. Actually, on that point, so you mentioned team risk, technical risk, market risk, but one of the risks around deep tech is fundability. When you put your money, what will be the next milestone to get the next investment or the next inflection point? What's your take on fundable milestones? 
the, the natural focus is on the technical milestones, right? Showing that their gadget has 2x the performance or 10x the performance. Ultimately, the question isn't whether that's sufficient. It's, it's is that even the right kind of metric at all, right? From a fundability's perspective, a common tool that we use is to look at a single chart, which is essentially cash burn and cash position versus value creation milestones for the company. We think of it as always investors and thinking of it from the next round perspective or an exit perspective. Like what are the two or three things you absolutely need to do in order to raise that next round and an up round? In a lot of cases for our pre-product revenue companies, it's building a product and actually getting product revenue, right? But even before that, there are value creation milestones around, did you secure a joint development agreement with a large corporate, right? Did you get NRE to develop this new program in an adjacent market showing now that there's twice the TAM that you used to have access to, right? Do you have a real board now that's really geared towards the industries and markets that you're going after with expertise to boot? Do you have the kinds of suppliers and vendor partnerships that would led one to believe that you could scale. When I think of value creation milestones, it's reducing risk, both on the sort of technical side, but also how do you commercialize, right? So just reducing risk. It's um, increasing the possible TAM, looking at adjacencies and trying to find ways to do that feasibility work without defocusing the team. And then I think it's also operationally being as capital efficient as possible. And that can mean a lot of things. So you know, for us, we want to see companies get to cash flow profitability as quickly as they can, because once you do that, there's many, many options at that stage. This escape velocity, essentially. Exactly. And getting to profitability isn't always straightforward, certainly. But if you keep an eye on that, and certainly, you know, for us, there's always a recognition of not just the money that we're putting into this round, but how much total capital will it take to get to that point. If it's very capital intensive, those are industries that we will likely shy away from, just given the size of our fund. I think having the options to carry the water ourselves, not in just in this round, but in follow on rounds, I think that gives us optionality. Certainly, if milestones slip, you know, we can be there to sort of help the company bridge them, take them forward without external investors coming in. And I say that's helpful to an extent. But I would say companies that require, you know, rounds of 25 million or 50 million dollars, that's well above our pay grade and areas where we get quite uncomfortable because of the scale of capital required before you reach profitability. What you're saying here is a good segue into a elephant in the room type of question, because we're in the middle of the coronavirus epidemic. Can you comment on how this has impacted your way of looking at startups and uh, maybe what's going on in your portfolio and what you see uh, happening in the market? I mean, certainly this is a challenging time for everybody and unprecedented in nature. At Anzu, we're quite fortunate that our industrial and life science companies are not generally exposed, both from the consumer sector and also from the oil or travel sectors. So just an example, we have MTX Bio, for instance. MTX Bio is a Santa Fe-based company that is developing ways to manufacture vaccines at extraordinary scale. And they do this with a novel cell-free-based platform. The COVID crisis has actually, I think, reinforced the need for technologies like theirs, right? And I think playing off of the interest in that, the funding interest in it, certainly the partnerships that are available now, the company's moving much faster than we would have anticipated. It's companies like Boston Microfluidics who are enabling at-home blood collection and testing for a range of health issues before COVID, but now focus on COVID. It's the ideal solution if you think about broad testing. I don't think anybody in a post-COVID world or even during COVID world would want to actually go to a blood drawing facility and potentially risk exposure. Can you enable quality blood draws from the home? That's something that is very near and dear to us and something that I'm working on personally. And just one more example is, is uh, Liquid Instruments. They've built this um, compact engineering tool that lets students continue their education from their homes. It comes with a tablet. It's a very small, compact, almost like pie-shaped machine that combines high-end oscilloscope, a waveform generator, a lock and amplifier, and allows, again, engineering students to be able to take advantage of those capabilities without having to go into a lab. 
in partnerships with the armed services, we're able to now develop content and deploy many of these tools to allow their students to continue educating themselves remotely. Now, those are really interesting examples. And uh, in our portfolio, we're fortunate to have uh, about a dozen companies that directly or indirectly are fighting a COVID, uh, either through prevention or biologics or testing, or even one that has a uh, nanomaterial to do better filtering masks, more breathable. Those are like uniquely timed. Some of them had the technology that was really, really well targeted at that. And some uh, found a successful pivot. A robotics company that was doing warehouse logistics robot turned one of their robotic platform into a disinfection and a temperature scanning robot. Took them two weeks to prototype and then another two weeks to ship the first dozen. Of course, a lot of other opportunities for anyone uh, doing things uh, around e-commerce or uh, remote diagnostics and automation. Post-COVID world is going to be very interesting. Do, do you see a lot of influence on your deals, on valuations, or the ability of companies to fundraise or to close uh, deals with corporates? Certainly. I, I do think that there's um, much more attention on the life science-based deals at this stage and, and the pipeline and the deal flow there. At least internally as a firm, we are certainly much more in tune and focused on companies that have relevance to the fight against COVID. In fact, there's a tailwind in the life science sector in general. And so that hasn't stopped valuations. That hasn't really stopped even corporate development activities in that space. In fact, it's intensified on the life science side. Now, that's not uniformly true across all sectors. Certainly automotive, aviation, you know, there are companies that are really struggling right now. Luckily for us, again, our, our companies are have been funded and built in ways that rely on these fundamentals, you know, around capital efficiency, making sure that we retain good talent. And it's based on technology that, again, isn't necessarily exposed to just one industry per se, because they're platform in nature. So uh, it's allowed us to put our companies in actually a pretty good position. So across the portfolio, we're doing quite well. So long as this doesn't last for multiple years here, although, you know, you never know, right, with reinfections and such. You know, I think this way of building companies that are capital efficient is almost a requirement to be successful in deep tech investing. I think you really need to give the companies the optionality and the runway and the guidance to be successful. Too often we get caught up in allowing companies to maybe put their headquarters in a really expensive location because they want to attract talent or, or whatnot. You know, having those difficult conversations with the founders up front saying, look, no, maybe you should consider a lower base rent locale and stomach a longer commute because actually that will enable you to have an extra quarter or two of runway. And that could make the difference between hitting your milestone or not. It's very important to make sure that we're in agreement and alignment with the founding team and management team on the operational milestones and plans and making sure that it all makes sense within the finance that they've raised. So it sounds a lot more pragmatic that uh, some of the playbooks of Silicon Valley firm, particularly in the consumer space, things that have more explosive potential growth? Yeah, I mean, certainly we, we don't have that kind of exposure in our portfolio, right? We're not looking for the next Facebook. This really has to be relevant to these large industries that are manufacturing the products that we use, that are developing the technology and solutions that we may need in the medical space. We want to invest in those grungy, hard technologies that don't get attention because those are actually the underinvested technologies that need to see the light of day. But for investors like ourselves that have, again, the ability to dive into the weeds on the technology, understand it, and then try to pair that with corporate partners or industries that could utilize that technology, they otherwise get shelved. I think there's a lot of great innovation that's happening that hasn't been properly thought of or positioned to do well, right? either because the entrepreneurs aren't seeing it the right way, they're not exposed to the same kinds of opportunities and problems that we see on a regular basis. I think uh, this is a fantastic help you're providing to startups and needed type of support. I hope you find many more great companies to invest in and that uh, we'll see your approach emulated across the country and around the world. Thanks a lot for your time. We hope so too. Thanks, Ben.
Thanks for listening. To know more about Onzo Partners, check out their website, Twitter, on the coverage of the closing of their latest fund in January 2020. Subscribe now for future episodes, follow us on Twitter at SOSV, or visit our other podcast, Designing Science on Biology, and China Startup Pulse on Asia Cross-Border Internet. Thank you.